Well, we're in this series, Life Apps, and the app we've come to today is a difficult one. Uh, it's a tricky one. It's the app of confession. And in the spirit of confession, I thought I would just start out by, this morning by confessing some things to you guys. Uh, my wife always gets a little nervous when I do this, so I have some things to confess to you today. Uh, first is this. I know it's Father's Day, but I hate golf. All right, I know there's a lot of dads out there that are thinking, man, if I could just be out, it's a beautiful morning, if I could just be out on the green somewhere, but I, it's stupid, all right? It's frustrating. If you don't play every week, you can't be any good at it, and uh, I was never able to get good, so I gave it up. Three years ago, I gave it up. Last year, I sold my clubs. I can't play golf anymore. If you ask me, Steve, do you play golf? I used to say, well, you know, I play from time to time. Now, if you ask me, I'll say, no, I don't play golf. I don't have any clubs. I can't come, so just don't even invite me, all right, if you want to come play golf. You know what golf courses are good for? You can run on them in the winter. That's what they're good for, all right? I have something else to confess to you this morning. I love Taylor Swift. I do. I love all of her music. In fact, uh, I'll be driving along in the car. Taylor Swift's song will come on. I will sing at the top of my lungs, even if my kids aren't in the car. I'll listen to her all by myself. I don't care. Uh, I don't care what you think about that either. I love Taylor Swift. Um, I have something else to confess to you. I want you to all think I'm healthy, but if I had my choice, I would eat donuts for breakfast every day. In fact, I'm so good. I would even do it on stage. If I had my choice, I would have Long's Donuts for breakfast every morning from the bakery in Indianapolis. They're so good. And some of you are going, oh, man, Long's Donuts. Where do you get those? I, uh, I, I run and bike so that I can eat donuts. Um, speaking of bicycles, I've probably owned more bicycles in my life than you've owned cars. Um, my wife's like, amen. <laughs> I've had as many as five at one time. I'm talking about for myself now. I'm not talking about my family's bikes, my wife's bikes, my kids' bikes. Um, I have a problem, quite honestly. I have a bicycle problem. Um, those of you who like to play golf and you have three sets of clubs for whatever course, I have, I have three bicycles right now. And so I'm sorry about that. No, I'm not sorry about that. We're confessing, right? I'm just being honest. I have another confession to make. I sometimes feel inadequate. I, uh, I repeatedly fail as a dad. I'm often selfish. I find it really difficult sometimes to put my family first before my needs. And, uh, and that bothers me. I mean, that's something that I wanted to confess to you. I, I'm, another thing, I'm incredibly prideful. Uh, I have a hard time being proved wrong. If you try to prove me wrong, you might succeed, but I won't like it. I sometimes slip into this mode, as, as my, my pastor friend says, where I feel like all of my family, friends, and neighbors are all extras in a movie about me. <laughs> you ever feel that way? You just get really prideful about that. And when I catch myself doing it, I really feel guilty about it. You know, as we're in this series called Life Apps, we've been talking about the importance of applying Scripture to your lives. You know, we've, we've, we've even used this verse, James 1.22, as kind of our key verse, where uh, James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. You know, James said, if you just listen to the word and you don't do anything about it, you're deceiving yourself. He says, do what it says. And so that's what we've been talking about in this series. We're given so much instruction and so much wisdom for our lives through Scripture, but if we don't take it and then apply it to our lives, well, it's wasted. We've said that it's like apps on your smartphone or on your tablet. Like if you have the app on there, it doesn't do you any good if you don't use it, right? And so scripture is a lot like that. If we hear something from, from the Bible, from scripture, and we don't use it, it doesn't do us any good. And so today, as we look at the app of confession, so many times when we think about confession, we think about, well, criminals maybe, right? Criminals confess. People who are in trouble 
confess. You know, like um, whatever TV show you'd like to watch, maybe the gritty detective forces that criminal into a corner where he's absolutely got to admit that, yeah, I did it. You know, there's no way out. Or the savvy district attorney uh, offers a lighter sentence, you know, in exchange for confession. But today, we're not talking about confessing a crime. It's more about admitting where we fall short. And so, so many of us, when we think about confessing our sin, uh, we think only, we really only need to confess to God. You know, that whenever we screw up, we'll, we'll go to God and say, God, I'm sorry I did that. Because our sin, first and foremost, is against him. And so it's to him we should confess and apologize. I mean, after all, Scripture tells us in, in 1 John, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that's important. And I think that's what so many of us desire out of confession is to, to feel righteous, to feel purified. But that's not all the Bible has to say about the issue. In fact, in the book of James, if we go back to the book of James, the brother of Jesus, uh, he, he had more to add about that. In James 5.16, it said this, Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Okay? Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And so we've developed all of these mechanisms, right, uh, for confession in the church especially. We've developed these mechanisms. So we we, uh, set up accountability partners. And usually with really good intentions of having an accountability partner, but then we often start stop asking each other the really hard questions, right? Or, Or we'll join a group. We get in a group where we're supposed to hold each other accountable. But, I mean, honestly, doesn't it get really tired, tiring asking about everybody else's junk? I mean, you just get tired of asking the same old questions all the time. And then we have what many of you think of when you think of confession. I know we've got a lot of our friends in the room that grew up Catholic or in the Catholic Church, and we think about um, the sacrament, the Catholic sacrament of confession, where you walk into a dark booth um, with a priest who you barely know, and hopefully who barely knows you, right? And you pour everything out, everything that you've done in the last year or two or five or however long it's been uh, since you were there last, But here's how we end up treating confession a lot of times. It's like this bucket. And every time we do something wrong, every time we sin, every time we're in a pattern, we pour stuff in this bucket. And when the bucket starts to get too heavy to carry around, we go to confession and we empty it, right? And we go through this pattern. Now that it's empty, it feels nice. It feels nice to have an empty bucket. And so then, but then eventually we start doing things again and we start putting them in the bucket. And then when it gets too much to bear, we go to somebody and we confess and we empty out our bucket. Now, I know many uh, Catholics who are sincere in their faith and, and practice very seriously. But, but for many people, whether you're Catholic or uh, Christian, Protestant, or whether you're not anything at all, um, it's a way, confession is a way to empty our sin bucket just so we can go fill it up again. In fact, I would guess that most of us believe that the real purpose of confession is to relieve our guilt, right? Or we do something, we feel guilty about it, we, we tell God about it, we tell the priest about it, we tell our accountability partner about it, and whew, That feels better until we do it again. And so it might surprise you to know that guilt relief was never the main purpose of confession in Scripture. But to really understand that, I think we need to take a trip through the history of confession and what God says about confession. So we're going to look at two different passages here. One is in the Old Testament book of Numbers. If you have your Bible, you might open there. We don't preach from Numbers very much, um, so it might be a great opportunity for you to read something you've never read before. We're going to go to Numbers, and then we're going to come um, to the New Testament here in a minute. But Numbers 5, here, here's what's happened. Um, Moses is, 
Moses is a man who's in charge of the nation of Israel. He has about 600,000 men at this time under his watch, plus their family. So probably about 2 million people in the nation of Israel. And he's burdened by the leadership. And so he's getting instruction directly from God. And here's what uh, it says in Numbers 5, 5. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord. Now, I just want to, I want to point this out, okay? Because sometimes we think if we haven't sinned, we don't have to confess. And what God says to Moses in this passage is, if you've wronged someone in any way, that you have un, you've been unfaithful to the Lord. Whoa, that kind of raises the bar, doesn't it? So any, any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord is guilty and must confess the sin they've committed. All right, that's number one, must confess the sin. Then they must make full restitution for the wrong they have done, add a fifth of the value and give it to the person that they've wronged. So there was this idea that when you wrong someone, you needed to tell God about it, absolutely, but also tell that person you'd wronged. You need to confess, and then not just tell them, but pay them back. What on earth? Who came up with this plan? Why would you need to do that? I mean, isn't it enough that I feel guilty about it? Isn't it enough that I confess to God about it? Why do I have to feel so much worse by going to the person I stole from And paying the back, not just what I stole, but a fifth on top of that. Why do I have to get even for the loss I cost? I lived this out in a very real way when I was 12. Uh, It was the 4th of July, and my dad and I were lighting fireworks out in the street, and we had one of those ones that jumps up in the air, and it jumped into a a shrub in my neighbor's yard and caught it on fire, just burst into flames. And... uh, we uh, pulled the hose out and put it out, and, uh, but the, the shrub was destroyed. And so my dad said, now we need to go tell him uh, that we burned his bush. And uh, so we knocked on the door, and I was like, he's not here. <laughs> Thankfully, my neighbors were away for the weekend. So I thought, well, that's the end. Neighbors are away. Um, that's good. I'm 12 years old. I think that's great. You know? And so um, the next day when my neighbors returned, my dad said, now we have to go tell them, and we have to offer to replace their bush. That's right. So we're going to confess, and then we're going to make full restitution. Now, I mean, wait, wait a minute. Why? <laughs> that firework did that by itself. Why do I have to tell them about that? And why do I have to make restitution? But my dad was uh, very straightforward. I was like, can't I just confess it to God? I mean, I'm not even a Christian at this point, right? But can't I just confess it to God? Wouldn't that be all right? No, but he was adamant that we needed to go make restitution to that person. So I went and knocked on the door. And, of course, I had to go by myself. I went and knocked on the door and said, uh, sir, I burned your bush down. I'm sorry. Um, I hope you'll forgive me, and we'd be willing to replace it for you. And uh, he was like, really? I didn't even notice. And I was like, oh, I knew it. <laughs> I knew I had. Why did I have to do that? I mean, I had to do it because he was the one that we had wronged, right? Our neighbor was the one he had wronged. We had to make restitution for it. And that's why the God, God tells the nation of Israel to make restitution. See, here's what I think we can take from this passage, and this is in your notes if you want to write this down. Genuine confession is a first step toward repentance and reconciliation. Genuine confession is the first step towards repentance and reconciliation. Now, those are two big words, and they're, they're pretty churchy, so if you're not in church very much, uh, let me explain those one at a time. Repentance, first of all. Repentance means to turn away from, all right? In, in the case of uh, sin, it means to stop doing that, and turn instead and move toward God. That's repentance. It's a change in a behavior, all right? Repentance is a change in behavior. Genuine confession is meant to get us going in that direction. 
Now, reconciliation is about restoring or reengaging with God or another person. It's a change in a relationship. So that's the difference. Repentance is a change in behavior. Reconciliation is a change in a relationship. And again, genuine confession is is meant to get us moving towards those two things, towards repentance and reconciliation. You know, there's another great example of this um, many hundreds of years later when Jesus comes along. Uh, one day, Jesus is walking along the street, and it's a very popular time in his ministry. And uh, he's walking down the road, and people are lined up to see him. And they're like two, three, four deep along the road. And uh, there was a man, a tax collector, who wanted to see Jesus, but he couldn't uh, because he was too short. Now, if you uh, went to Sunday school at all, you probably know the story of a man named Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. So he climbed up in a sycamore tree, right? For the Lord he wanted to see. So those of us who went to Sunday school know this story and know the song more specifically. But yeah, Zacchaeus, uh, when we think about him, we think about him as a tax collector. And that was bad, all right? So, but we think about him more like an IRS agent, okay? And that's not what tax collectors in the day were. The tax collectors in that day were often Jewish men who the Roman government recruited to go basically extort money from the Jewish people. See, the Roman government was in charge of the nation of Israel, in charge of the land where the nation of Israel resided, but Israel didn't act like they lived in Rome. They weren't really Roman citizens. And so, uh, but they owed taxes to the Romans because they lived in their land. And so the tax collector was a Jewish man who was kind of looked at as a traitor. He he, uh, took on the full force of the Roman army to help him collect taxes. And now what would happen is Rome specified how much money they needed out of a certain region and whatever else the tax collector could get, well, that was how he fed his family. And so they would willingly charge more than the Roman government was asking for by force of the Roman army, taking money from the Jewish people and handing some of it over to the um, Roman government and then getting rich off the rest of it. So they were hated people. In fact, if you read all throughout the New Testament, what you see is they accuse Jesus of hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, they, like they weren't even the same category as sinners. Like sinners didn't want to be associated with tax collectors. They were that bad, okay? Well, Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. Scripture tells us he was a chief tax collector, which meant he had tax collectors working for him. He was not a popular man. And in Luke 19, we pick up the story, Luke 19, 5, when Jesus reached the spot where Zacchaeus is up in the tree, he looked up at him and said, Zacchaeus, you come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Now, this must have caused a collective gasp in the crowd because can you imagine um, being at a rock concert, all right, and they're in the middle of a song, and all of a sudden the lead singer says, you, I'm coming to stay with you today. And you're like, or you're at a sporting event, right? And and after a play, the quarterback points up to you in the stand and said, hey, I'm coming to your house today. You go, what? And all the heads would turn right in the crowd. And then in this case, they saw who it was and they went, huh? With him? The, the chief tax collector? Jesus is going to see the chief tax collector? Verse six, so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and they began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. What does he mean if he's cheated? He's a tax collector. That's what they did for a living, right? But see, he's making a genuine effort towards repentance and reconciliation. 
He confesses, right? He confesses to Jesus, and he says, hey, I'm going to pay these people back. Jesus said to him, look at this, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Jesus said, today you are reconciled to God. Your relationship with the Lord has changed, and and not because, all right? What we see is that Zacchaeus has a genuine encounter with Jesus, And because of that, he's compelled to take a step towards repentance and reconciliation. Not because Jesus guilted him into it, right? And it's not because of his actions of paying people back that he's um, brought back into the family of God, that he's found his way back to God. It's not because the people around him were saying, well, if you're really a Christian, you know, you would do that. You'd pay all that money back. It's not because of anybody's words or actions or Facebook posts, all right? Most of all, what we see is a change in his attitude, It's a change in his approach. It's a change in his mindset, okay? We see a man, a tax collector, who's had this genuine encounter with Jesus, and his actions show that. In fact, we could even conclude from this story that genuine confession leads to genuine change. And that's really the purpose of confession. It's not this. It's not not to help us feel better and get everything out. It's to help us realize that what we've done is wrong. And when we do things wrong, it hurts God and it hurts people. And the purpose in that is not to make us feel guilty, but it's to cause us to change our ways. Because of that, we need to confess in a way that causes change, that leads us towards repentance, that leads us towards reconciliation. But how do I do that? How do we best confess? How far should we go? What what words should I use? What, What are some principles of confession? And that's what I want to talk about in the last few minutes we have. Of course, every situation is going to be a little different, but let me give you some thoughts, uh, some three, three principles of confession. All right? First of all, we have to confess to God and confess to another person. That, that other person should be a Christian who can guide you back to biblical principles. I mean, after all, James tells us to confess to one another. That means anyone who's a Christian should know at least one other Christian that you'd be comfortable confessing to. Now, this could be a friend, it could be a connection group leader. It could be a counselor. It could be a pastor or a ministry leader. But getting it out in the open with another person is the first step in being fully known. And second, since confession is a way to find my way back to God, right, or to reconcile our relationship with God, we need to confess anything in our lives that's separating us from him. I mean, so often when we think about confession, we think about these big secrets that we have that, man, if they just got out in the open, nobody would know what to do with them. But some of us have like little things that have been bothering us, little things with a family member, little things with a friend that, you know, they don't know that we've, bought, we've hurt them, but maybe it's bothering us. So we have to confess everything. We, we can be, uh, you know, Dr. Henry Cloud suggests anything that remains unconfessed in our lives is still sin living in darkness, So we can be fully saved through a relationship with Jesus, but we can have parts of our soul still struggling with sin. And for this reason, it's important to confess completely. That's the second principle. We need to confess completely. You know, what are you struggling with? How often? What's the result? It's so important for our journey towards repentance and reconciliation is when you confess, not just saying, hey, you know what? I I struggle with this. It's, um, I struggle with this every day. And here's what causes it, and here's how I've acted on it, and here's how it's hurt you. It's so important for our journey. As one pastor says, uh, sometimes we're not really sure we're forgiven because we're not really sure we've confessed because we haven't let it all out. So finally, the third principle is we have to desire change. 
when we confess. You know, confession helps us understand the reality of who we are. It helps us experience the gap between us and the standard that God has set for our behavior. It helps us to understand that we're imperfect and, and that we need a Savior. We can't save ourselves. Anyone who claims to be a Christian, okay, will readily admit, I'm a sinner. But most of us will never admit to any sin. But if you desire change, it causes you to look inward and to see how far you still have to come. You know, stop denying it. Don't push the truth aside. Embrace your imperfection. And resolve to let the Holy Spirit work in your heart on those things. Okay, come on now. I want, I want to talk to those of you who've been carrying around the same stupid habit for years and years and years. You, know, you can't stop getting drunk, or you can't stop hurting your feelings, or you can't stop cheating on him. You can't stop looking at that, or whatever it is. And, and every time you do it, you feel guilty. And, and every time you do it, you think to yourself, I'm going to stop that. And every time you do it, you say to God, God, forgive me. I promise I won't let that happen again. And then you've emptied out your sin bucket. And before you know it, you're right back at it. If, if that's you, I'm talking to you right now, okay? You need to confess. And you need to confess to someone, and in a way, to someone who will hold you accountable. I mean, eventually, you'll need to confess to the person that you're sinning against, that you're hurting. But you need to confess in a way that leads to repentance and reconciliation. You need to confess to God, but then you need to confess to somebody else because that's the only way. It's the only way change is going to come in your life. If you've really struggled with something and you want to get rid of it, the only way to get rid of it is to confess it to somebody and somebody who's going to hold you accountable. Now, if you can't do that, okay, if you can't confess, if, if you don't want to change, if, if you've got some part of your life that you just say, you know what, God, you can have all of this, but this little part of my life, I just don't want to change. I like that habit too much. I like that sin too much. I like doing that too much. I, I need you. If you've got a sin or a pattern that you won't leave or something that you don't want to quit, I need you to pray a new prayer. Okay, I think you need to do this. You need to be brutally honest with God. You need to be gut-level honest. And you need to pray like this. God, I'm sorry I've sinned, but I'm going to keep on doing it. I mean, because right now you're lying to him. You're lying to yourself. There's no need for that. So just be honest. And maybe the shock of that honesty will help you realize I'm doing something God says is wrong, and I'm telling the God of the universe that I'm going to keep on doing it. Be honest with yourself and be honest with God. Now, finally, I want to talk to those of you who really do want to change. And in fact, you're desperate for change, but you're, you're worried about what's going to happen when you confess. You worry about what your boss will say or what your wife will say or what your family will think about you, how people will act around you. I want to assure you that when you confess, things are going to change. It's going to be different. And the more personal that hurt you've caused, the deeper it runs, the longer it's gone on, the more you're going to feel that change, the worse the consequences are going to be. But I promise you this. I promise you this. The consequences of secrets are far worse than the consequences of confession. And on this side of confession, you're not sure. You don't think that's true. You can't imagine what the consequences will be when you tell him what you did. You, you think it could be the end for that relationship. It could cripple your marriage, that your kids won't forgive you. You could lose your job. But right now, you're enslaved. You're trapped. You're jailed by your secret. You feel put in a corner by it, and you don't see how it could possibly get better. And until you're able to confess, it probably won't. 
there's a, as I was preparing for this message, I heard the story of uh, somebody who attends Genesis Church, and um, he became, he found his way back to God here, and became a Christian at Genesis Church, and uh, he realized uh, somewhere in that process that he had been stealing from his employer and that that was wrong. And he realized that now with this new system of beliefs he had, this new relationship he had with Jesus, that he was going to have to tell him. And he was worried about it because he was sure that he was going to lose his job. But he knew that it was the right thing to do. And so um, he uh, went to his employer and he told him, hey, uh, let me tell you what's been happening. And he, he laid the whole thing out, how much and when and how it happened. And he, he just knew that was the end of it for him. And he had his wife. He called his wife said, hey, be praying for me. And <clears throat> his employer was taken aback, obviously. But he was so uh, moved by his honesty that he decided to let him pay it back and to keep his job. Man, what a burden that was lifted. You can only imagine what you must have been carrying around with that and to see it lifted off his shoulders. So here's, here's what I want, to, I want to leave you with today, okay? I want you to ask two questions of yourself. What do I need to confess? Maybe you got nothing. Maybe you look and, and you have a, your life's an open book and everybody knows everything that's going on in your life, but, but likely you've got something. What, what do you need to confess? And then two, who do I need to confess it to? Who's that person? Who's that one person that can hold me accountable? Who is that that I feel comfortable with, that they're not going to share my secret with anybody? Now, I want to encourage you as we close today, I just want to encourage you to pray this prayer. It's from Psalm 139, and it's one of my favorite prayers about sin and confession. Uh, David wrote this. He wrote, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so as you all just close your eyes and bow your heads, we're going to do this together. Let's just pray that prayer together. You, can, you don't have to say it after me, but just pray it silently in your mind. Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And God, lead me in the way everlasting. Lord God, I pray as we think about this difficult subject, Lord, it's difficult because of our shortcomings. It's difficult because we don't always follow your law and your precepts. Um, it's difficult because, well, we're human and we fall short of your glory sometimes. All of us do. And God, when we do, sometimes people get hurt uh, and it causes wreckage in our lives. And Lord, we, uh, we can look around and we can see the results of that. In so many of our lives, we can see the decisions we've made and what's led up to that and and how that's played out in our lives. And God, um, we know that it's not your desire that we feel guilt over that, that you, have, you went to the cross and died to free us from all guilt. And Lord, I'm so thankful for Jesus and that price that he paid so that anything that we've done, if we ask to be forgiven from you, that we're forgiven for it. So thank you for that. We don't deserve that. But God, we also know that in our lives, we've, in the course of our dealings, we've hurt other people. And so as we think about... We confess our sin to you, uh, and we think about just the enormity of what it would mean to confess our sin to somebody else. Uh, God, that's a little overwhelming. Uh, we need your courage, your strength. We need your backing, God. We need to know that you're with us. Lord, for those of us who are really struggling with maybe what can I confess, what do I have, is there anything, Lord, we just pray that you'd search our hearts. Would you help point out to us this week where we've fallen short and who we may have hurt and who we might have offended and what we need to do about that, God. We, we want to be led in the way everlasting. We want to 
know what it means to, be, to, be, to repent and to reconcile our relationship with you. So we just ask that you'd help us with that, God. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.